Dad, you taught me that the most important thing a father can leave to his kids is not what he leaves for them, but what he leaves in them. You operated heavy machinery by day and a tiny toothbrush by night. You lifted me up even higher than you could lift yourself. You told me stories of warriors and dragons, not to convince me that dragons were real, but to show me that evil can be overcome. You mastered the art of carrying a sleeping child, fixing little toys, and making the perfect sandwich. You showed me that you don't have to have superpowers to be a superhero. You knew that there is no quality time without quantity time. You cleaned up my messes, impersonated my favorite animals, and wiped away my tears. You understood that your greatest gift to our family was not your productivity, but your presence. You were focused, but interruptible. Brave, but compassionate. Strong, but gentle. Because there is nothing so strong as gentleness. And nothing so gentle as real strength. Thanks, Dad. And to those of you who are joining us online, again, welcome to Freedom Online. We're so glad to have you tune in and be a part of things in that way. A happy Father's Day to all of you, those of you in the room and those watching online. Uh, it is a privilege that we carry to be called Dad and have the role that we uh, carry in the family. And uh, to all of you, I just want to say thank you for the role that you take in leading your kids, leading your your household, and uh, it's a joy to get to celebrate worship with you today. We're going to be looking uh, in the scriptures today at a message that I think is a perfect fit for us on a Father's Day. So, uh, ladies, while this absolutely applies to all of us, please uh, just indulge me and give me the opportunity to speak very specifically to men, and you'll understand that the things that we talk about certainly apply to everybody in the family. But uh, men, today is very much a message for us. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 14. We're wrapping up a series that uh, is entitled Courage to Overcome. And as we conclude this, we're going to jump ahead in time five years as we're going to get to look at one life that really stands out. We, we've looked at Joshua's life, but there's one guy who had as much courage and as much faith as Joshua had, and his name was Caleb. And we're going to learn a lot from his example today. We're going to look uh, five years ahead of where we've been in the narrative but we're going to back up 40 years first to set the stage for this. So very quickly to remind you of where we are and, and remind you of who this character Caleb is, I would just remind you that whenever God worked through Moses to lead the Israelites out of this whole time of captivity that they've been in Egypt for centuries, uh, it was under Moses' leadership, and it was not supposed to take 40 years. God's plan was to lead the people very quickly into this land that he had promised to Abraham and his descendants as an eternal inheritance. And so when they got to the point that God was about to send them into the land, he led Moses to select 12 men, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were to be spies. They were to go into the land, and for 40 days they were to roam all over the land that would become the nation of Israel. They were supposed to scout out both the cities and, and the landscape 
and uh, what kinds of vegetation grew there. They were supposed to bring back some samples of what they saw growing there, and from that, that was going to just sort of build some anticipation and also help lay the groundwork for, for a plan for going in and conquering those cities and taking the land. And so in Numbers 13, that's when all of this took place at a place called Kadesh Barnea. I'm just telling you that because it's going to come back up where we're going to be in Joshua 14 today. So Moses sends out 12 men to scout the land for, 12, uh, for, for 40 days. Now, the names of 10 of those 12 men, they're in Scripture, but we're not going to even bother to read them because you would know who they are because what they did was rather cowardly and, and nothing that they've done was remarkable. But there are two men in the group that we will always remember, and their names are Joshua and Caleb. So these 12 men for 40 days scouted the land. And when they came back, the report that they gave was this is a wonderful land. It's everything that God had promised that it would be, and it would be a great home for our people. But in Numbers chapter 13, if you want to follow along in your outlines, the very first passage that you see there is where we'll pick up. The men told Moses, this is 10 of, of the 12 spies, we went to the land where you sent us. It was a land filled with many good things, but the people who live there are very powerful. The cities are large and strongly defended, and we cannot fight those people. They are much stronger than we are. So those men gave a report that discouraged the people. They said the land we saw is full of strong people. They are strong enough to easily defeat anyone who goes there. And we saw the giant Nephilim people there. This is the, the most um, daunting thing that they could have run into. This, this is, there's a lot of mystery surrounding this. But in one particular region of the Holy Land, it's the high country. It's what we're going to be reading about in Joshua 14. In the area of what is today Hebron, where these these people who were kind of just genetic freaks, apparently. They were just bigger than everybody else. They would have, If there had been an NBA back in those days, all the all-stars would have come from that region of the country, the hill country. And they saw these people, and they came back and said, there is no way we could defeat those people. They're bigger than us. They live in walled cities. They're, they're fortified. They're protected. We couldn't defeat their armies. But Caleb, one of the two spies told the people near Moses to be quiet. Then Caleb said, We should go up and take the land for ourselves. We can easily take that land. You've got to love that guy. He doesn't care what the rest of the crowd is saying. He speaks in faith. We can take this land. But if we jump on down to the very uh, next chapter, the beginning of, of Numbers 14, it says, That night all the people in the camp began, to sh began shouting loudly. You can just imagine how this spread through the whole camp. We're talking about a half a million to a million uh, Hebrew people and word spreads like wildfire. Everybody's posted it on their social media, the report that's been brought back. And so everybody's up in arms. So the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron and all the people came together and said to Moses and Aaron, we should have died in Egypt or in the desert. Did the Lord bring us to this new land to be killed in war? The enemy will kill us and will take our wives and children. The people said to each other, let's choose another leader and go back to Egypt. I mean, do you hear how far this has gone in just a, a span of an afternoon and an evening? It goes from, you know, we're waiting for the word to come back so we can go and take the land to now in one day, oh, gloom and doom, we're, we're going to all die. Let's get rid of Moses and Aaron. We'll pick some new leaders and we'll hightail it back to Egypt because life was so grand there. But Joshua and Caleb became very upset. 
These two men said to all the Israelites gathered there, The land we saw is very good. It is a land filled with many good things. Now listen to the rest of this, because these are hearts of courage and faith speaking. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. And he will give that land to us, so don't turn against the Lord. Don't be afraid of the people in that land. We can defeat them. This is such a great line. They have no protection, nothing to keep them safe. But we have the Lord with us, so don't be afraid. And all the people began talking about killing Joshua and Caleb with the stones. (laughs) Don't you love that? The voice of faith. These people, oh, they've got walled cities and they've got chariots and armies, but they don't have any real protection. We're the ones who've got protection because we've got the Lord on our side and we're expecting the people of faith to go, yeah. Instead, they looked at each other and said, why don't we kill them too? Let's take these guys out before this goes any further. But the glory of the Lord appeared over the tent of meeting right there in that moment where all the people could see it. And God just said, no, you're not. You're not going to do that. These are my men. As a result, God said a couple of things. He said, this nation, all of the adults of this nation will miss out on the whole promised land experience. They won't get to see any of those victories. They won't get to taste the fruit of that land. They won't get to live in those cities. They will totally miss out because what's going to happen is I'm going to keep you in the wilderness until this entire adult generation dies. No one over the age of 20 will live to see the land except for two people, Joshua and Caleb. God just spelled it out. I'm going to let two of you get there. Even Moses isn't going to get to go in and take possession. Only Joshua and Caleb because they were the only two people in the country who were willing to believe God for what he wanted to give to his people. So that's 40 years before what we've been reading in Joshua, what we've been reading the last few weeks. They prepare, they cross over the Jordan, they go in, they attack Jericho, they attack Ai. That's the beginning of taking possession of the land, and it's a new generation. All the old folks have died out. How weird is it that now they are a nation that there are only two people over the age of 60 among the whole nation there, Joshua and Caleb. They're 85. Everybody else is not a senior adult. For five years now, as we march through Joshua, the chapters that we've skipped over, they've just been conquering city after city as the, the hand of the Lord is going with them, and they are taking possession of the land. And when we get to Joshua chapter 14 today, they have essentially conquered the land, and now they're divvying it up for the 12 tribes. And so Moses is going through, and, and he's saying, okay, uh, Judah over here, we're going to give you, and he'll name off, you know, 50 cities that make up the, the region of the country that you're going to get. And Ephraim, here's what you're going to get. So he's, he's describing all of these 12 regions that they're going to go in and separate and inhabit. But there's a, a peculiar little twist in this, and that is even though they've taken the bulk of what is today Israel and, and some even beyond what is Israel today, there are some little pockets where they didn't bother to conquer everybody. Like they would take over a whole region, but in a couple of specific cases, they just said, let's don't bother with that city because that would be too much trouble to take that. So Jerusalem has not been conquered yet. And what we call today Hebron, which is one of the, the oldest cities in the world that's been continuously inhabited, and there's a good reason for it because it was both Jerusalem and Hebron sat on high ground. 
places that were great to defend. These would be great fortresses, and, and ultimately they would be used as capitals for Israel. And so they just didn't touch those places, especially what is now Hebron. Because it not only was the high country, it was where the descendants of Anak, these, these people that they think were descended from the Nephilim, the giants, the people who were almost superhuman, they lived there in the most fortified, easy-to-defend part of the country. This is the same region that when David first becomes king, and you remember he's not king of all of Israel, he's king of Judah first for seven and a half years, and so he chooses Hebron as his capital because it's the best place in the country to, to defend yourself and to operate from. And so that's what we're about to read about in Joshua 14 as they're, they're giving out the land to the different tribes. But within the tribe of Judah, Caleb was the spy from Judah. And God not only promised Caleb that he would get to go in and see the land and enjoy the fruit of the land, he said, you and your descendants are going to have a particular inheritance in the land. You're going to get some of the land for you and your descendants from now on, and we're going to read about that. It says in verse 6 of Joshua 14, Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. That was the place they you know, sent out the spies and received the spies back. It was, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever. Because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses. While Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day that Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Don't you love this guy already? He says, I don't care that I'm 85 years old. I'm just as fired up. I'm just as ready. Let's giddy up and get it done. Verse 12, now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourselves heard then that the Anakites were there, and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Do you realize what just happened? He didn't look around at the most choice land that the cities had been conquered in. He looked beyond that and said, you know, what I see that's really intriguing is this really beautiful hill country over here and the fortified cities that are there that haven't been taken yet. Everybody else is only laying claim to the conquered cities and the fields around them. Caleb is the one man in the country who says, I want to take what hasn't been claimed yet. I don't want you to just give me something. I want you to just give me permission to go and conquer the biggest and the baddest of them all. I love this guy. 85 years old and he is ready for the biggest challenge that they faced yet. Verse 13, then Joshua 
blessed Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as in his inheritance. You know there has to be just this wonderful admiration between Joshua and Caleb. They were the two spies 45 years before who went out, who came back, who stood together, who almost got stoned, and, and they've watched each other for all this time. Joshua's been Moses' understudy. Joshua's now been leading the nation for five years, and Caleb's been a nobody. Just being a faithful man, following the Lord, and waiting for his next opportunity to serve the Lord. And now Caleb has his chance to speak up. And don't you know that Joshua is just kind of shaking his head and grinning and going, he hadn't changed one bit in 45 years. He's asking me to give him Hebron. It's not like we've taken it to give it. And he said, oh, just give me the word. I'll go take it. You don't have to worry about that. I'll go deal with that. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. And as Joshua often does, chapter 15 goes back and kind of unpacks then how that plays out. And I'll jump ahead and just give you a couple of verses in chapter 15, verse 13. It says, in accordance with the Lord's command to him, Joshua gave Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, and from Hebron, Caleb drove out the three Anakites, Sheshai, Ahaman, and Talmai, the sons of Anak. And from there, he marched against the people living in Debir. What he ended up doing was not just taking that city, but taking that entire region. At 85, he just led his own little group to go and take the most intimidating region of the country. And he not only got to possess that for himself, but his descendants got that as an ongoing inheritance. Is there anybody we could pick in the scriptures that would be a better example for us as men on Father's Day than this guy who at 85 years old is still getting it done? He's still setting the pace. Well, there are a lot of things about his life that are worth remembering, but there are four today that I want to hold before you that just become for us life lessons from a a courageous man that I want you to notice. And the first one is this, that you cannot follow the crowd and also rise above it. You know, it's natural that we tend to go with the flow and sort of do what everybody else is doing around us. But at some point, we have to pause and remember, I can't follow the crowd and still excel. You can't rise above it if you follow it. Now, if I ask the men in the room, those of you watching online, how many of you, when you're evaluated as as a husband or as a father, that you would say, you know what my goal is, is as a dad and as a husband, I want to be extremely average. Anybody that's shooting for that? I mean, if, if you're given grades for fatherhood and being a husband and a spiritual leader, the grade that I'm shooting for is just a middle-of-the-pack C. I mean, I'm not after an A or even a B. I mean, I don't want to be a failure, but I want to see. Nobody wants that. I mean, is there anybody in the room? That's your goal as a, as a man, as a father and a leader. I just want a, a C. No. God didn't wire us that way. We, we want to excel, but it's not going to happen by accident. And you can't follow the example of most of the people around you and rise above it. You can't settle for average if you're hoping to be exceptional. So what does the average man look like today? I'm curious. Why don't we make this audience participation time? What would you say 
are some of the things that are descriptive of the average American man today. Well, what does that life look like? I know you got masks on, but you can still speak. Anybody? Oh, needing and wanting to be liked. Yes, indeed. Anybody else? What do you think of in terms of the average man in America? Lackadaisical. Anybody else? What do you observe about the average man in America? I'm not trying to beat us up. It's just interesting to observe what life looks like. Thanks, Dave. Dave said the average man is more worried about his job than anything else. I think that's a pretty fair assessment that that maybe the culture has helped to drive that, but... We are very much about our careers and about our jobs. And I think the thing that goes with that is that the average man then says, so all that other family stuff is up to you, honey. That's the wife's job. You deal with the kids. You deal with all the relational stuff. You be the spiritual leader in the family. I I find it interesting that on a pretty much an, an every year basis, Mother's Day is one of the three most heavily attended Sundays of the year in churches across the land. And Father's Day is one of the worst attended Sundays of the year. Which I think is reflective of something that is true within the family. When we look at mom and say, okay, this Sunday is your special day. What do you want to do? That moms are expected to be the spiritual leaders. And they go, I want us all to go to church as a family. And the next month when Father's Day rolls around and we say, all right, Dad, what do you want to do on Sunday? Fathers say, I want to sleep in and then go out to eat and go to the beach or go... But it ain't go to church. The average man focuses on his work and makes his goals about money and providing for the family. But it's not usually very relationally driven. It's not usually about being a spiritual leader. You can't follow the crowd in those things if you're going to rise above. Caleb was an example of this. And God singled him out because of it. In Numbers 14, 24, God says, But my servant Caleb is not like the others, so because he has faith in me, I will allow him to cross into Canaan, and his descendants will settle there. There's a second thing from Caleb's life that stands out, and and it is this. It just reminds us that our choices in a few critical moments in life will define most of the other moments of our lives. How different would Caleb's life have been If on that one fateful day back in Kadesh Barnea, when the majority were saying, this is crazy, this is too risky, we cannot go in and and conquer these people, why are we even thinking about this? If Caleb had just said, well, I mean, who am I to overrule all these other courageous men, all these other leaders? If he had just said, I guess I better keep my mouth shut and just sort of go with the majority, how differently would things have turned out? It would have been completely different, wouldn't it? He would have died in the wilderness. He and his family would have perished just like everybody else in the wilderness, and he totally would have missed out. Two times that day and that night, he had to decide, am I going to speak up or am I just going to sit here and keep my mouth shut? And those two moments defined the rest of his life. There was another moment like that that we read about in Joshua 14 where it's time to to divvy up the land, and he could just sort of sit back and go, well, you know, I mean, I've just sort of been living in the shadows for 45 years. I guess I'll take whatever they dish out. Or I can step up and say, you know what? I still believe God wants to give us the best of the country right there. 
And I'd be willing to lead some people in taking that. That defines the remaining years of his life and the future of his descendants in that moment of time. Isn't it crazy and almost scary to look back and to think about just the few little moments that have defined years of your life and you didn't know in advance that it was coming and usually in that moment it's not like you get a memo that says hey Forrest right now in the next five minutes you're going to make a decision that's going to have a huge impact on the next 25 years of your life you almost never know it in advance and yet you have those moments in football great football coaches will say in any game in every game that's played of the in a typical college game there's between 150 and 200 plays in a game and, and a coach will say, but there will be three or four or five, at the most, maybe a half a dozen plays that will determine the outcome of the whole game. And the challenge is, you don't know which plays it's going to be. But in any game, you can go back and rewatch the film, and you'll go, it was that play, that one, that one, and that one that, that defined the whole game. Life tends to be that way. Day after day, you can just feel like you're living Groundhog Day over and over again. Nothing significant is going on today. But there are going to be some moments, there are going to be some days where if you step up and you act in faith and you do what you're called to do, it will be a watershed moment that will change a large portion of your life for good or for bad. And you usually don't know when they're coming. I remember a number of these in my life, and and it's crazy how small they are in the moment. I, I remember one night decades ago living in Tuscaloosa, And I got a phone call from an old friend that I hadn't seen or heard from in a couple of years. I'd lost track of him. I knew he had moved away. And I'd heard he moved to this place called Fairhope, and I didn't have any idea where that was. I figured I'd never see him again. And he called and said, hey, you know, just small talk. And he said, hey, the church that I attend uh, here where we live now is looking for a youth pastor. And I know you're happy where you are and aren't looking to move, but I just wondered if you know anybody that you could recommend to us because we've really been struggling to find a youth pastor. And I thought about it and thought about it. And I'm like, man, I feel so bad, but I, I can't think of anybody to suggest to you. But I'll tell you what, I'll pray about it and think about it. If I come up with anybody, I'll call you back and, and pass along anything that, that comes to mind. So the next day I'm in my office, in, in my corner where I go to pray and have my quiet time. As I'm praying through my, my prayer list of stuff, I think about my friend Mike and his call to me. And so I'm just saying, God... It, that thing that Mike asked about, is there anybody that I know that I should suggest to him? Am, you know, am I supposed to be a part of that? I really sort of felt something tugging in my heart that I really should be praying about that. And just being still and quiet after asking that, I remember so clearly the Holy Spirit going, yeah, your name. I was like, no, I'm talking about me. I, I mean, is there some friend of mine out there that you want me to give their name? And the Holy Spirit, again, just so clearly said, give him your name. And I'm like, no, God, I like Tuscaloosa. I love my church. I don't want to go anywhere. He, he wasn't asking for my name. He's looking for somebody else. And in that moment, it's like, are you going to listen or not? And I, I remember freaking out inside. My heart rate just tripled in about 30 seconds. And I remember getting up and going over to the bookcase and pulling out a, a map uh, an atlas and you know turning to alabama and well where's Fairhope? you know there it is and, and now i'm just like freaking out inside because i'm realizing oh my goodness god's speaking and i have to call my friend back that day and say uh you didn't ask for my name but the holy spirit said i'm supposed to give you my name and he laughed and said that's what i was calling for in the first place i just didn't have the guts to ask for it because i knew you were really happy where you were and you said oh yeah i love where i am and i'm like i am happy i don't want to go anywhere and out of that, God called us to Fairhope and to church plant, you know, living 
where I'm living right now. I can think of so many instances like that. Some of them where it's a question of, are you going to say yes and take a little step in a particular direction that you weren't planning to take that becomes a defining moment? And sometimes it's saying no. I think back to 22 years ago, I was serving on staff at First Baptist Fairhope, and just it was a chaotic season. I mean, I've never been in a church situation that got as crazy and chaotic as as it did there then. And uh, the church was going through a split. I'd, I'd never witnessed a church split before, and now I am well acquainted with what a split looks like. It is not a pleasant thing. And the pastor made an announcement on Sunday that he was leaving and that he was going to take as many people as he could with him to go and start a new church in the community. And there were just gasps and weeping in the room when that happened. And all of us on staff, our jaws were just on the floor because we are like, oh, wow, nobody told us that this was coming. And we had been praying about the possibility of planting a church. And now suddenly there was a church split that was taking place. And so it was a really crazy next three days. And then I remember the pastor calling me in his office. And it was just, it was a, an awful environment because instantly everybody split into two camps. And it's like a war in the church and everybody's mad at each other. Those who did know and those who didn't know, those who were going and those who were staying. And everybody's looking at the staff wanting to know who all was in on it. And the staff were in the dark, except for the pastor. And I'm not trying to paint him as a bad guy. It just This is what went down. So the pastor calls me in three days later, and he's just tears rolling down his cheeks. And he's like, I have messed up. This was never supposed to happen this way. I know it was not. I know I was not supposed to do this. I, would you please come with me and co-pastor with me in starting this church? I knew that you were supposed to pastor the church plant. You knew it. If you'll just come with me. After a short time, I'll bow out, I'll take a teaching job or go do something, and you can pastor that church. Now, I had been wrestling with the fact that God had put this thing in my heart that I'm supposed to be planting a church, and I don't know how in the world you plant a church. All of that is so foreign to me, and now, all of a sudden, like that, a church is split while I'm watching, and I don't know what that's about. And now three days later, somebody is saying, I know you were supposed to pastor the new work, and you know you were supposed to pastor the new work, so how about coming with me, and we'll do it together, and then you'll get to take over and be the pastor of the new work. Anybody think that might be confusing? Let me tell you, I, my mind was blown. And there's a part of me in that moment that went, well, I never planted a new church before, but if you're going to do it, it sure sounds like that would be the easy way. Because in the next three weeks, 300 people lettered out of the church to go and start the new church. And in that moment, it's like, that sure sounds a whole lot easier than anything I've ever imagined church planning to be. If you had hundreds of people on board with you to begin with and, and you know, you've got money and people and, and a plan, I'm like, wow, that could work. But in that moment, a decision had to be made. As I prayed and just said, God is... Are you in this? Is, am I? Why do I feel so confused by this? And the Holy Spirit so clearly said in a moment of time, what is happening is rooted in deception. Yes, I've called you to plant a church, but it's not going to be birthed out of a big deception. You don't get to be a part of this. Now, I'm not saying that to attack anybody. My heart really breaks because I love everybody that was involved in that. Nobody was intending evil. It was, it was a great example of a snowball rolling down a hill and getting out of control. I'm just telling you that for me and my part, it was very tempting to say, yeah, I'm glad you thought of me. 
that looks like the easy way to plant a church. Tragically, that church does not exist anymore. It grew quickly to 600 people. And today, not that many years later, it doesn't exist anymore. It was a defining moment to have to realize in that moment, as tempting as this looks, that the Holy Spirit is saying, there's a different plan. And I'm thinking, I don't see a plan. I mean, any hope of planting a church is going out the door with this movement. So, God, I don't see how you could ever plant a church out of this. And God's going, that's okay. You don't have to know the how. You just got to say yes, that you'll follow my plan. It was a defining moment. You got to go this way or this way. And every one of us have those moments. And you're not going to get a memo in advance. Deuteronomy 1, 35 and 36. The Lord says this. Not one of you evil people who are alive now will go into the good land that I promised to your ancestors. Only Caleb will see that land. I will give Caleb the land he walked on, and I will give that land to his descendants because he did all that I, the Lord, commanded on that given day. It's amazing what a difference a moment can make, what a day can make. There is a third truth about Caleb's life that stands out to me that that maybe is the most important thing that we'll consider today, and it is this. His life reminds us that enduring faithfulness is just as important as great courage in life. We just read in Joshua 14, Moses, this is Joshua speaking, Moses, the Lord's servant, sent me to look at the land where we were going. I was 40 years old at the time, and now the Lord has kept me alive for 45 more years as he said he would. And during that time, we all wandered in the desert. Now, here I am, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as I was the day that Moses sent me out, and I'm as ready to fight as I was then. The thing that I want you to notice there is we don't have a record of the things that Caleb did during those 45 years. He lived in obscurity among a people who were rebellious and stubborn and complained and rebelled against God again and again. And all that we know of Caleb is that he just stayed faithful to do his part and to trust God. It would have been so tempting time and again to just give up and to just take his clan and to to depart and just go, these crazy Hebrew people are just nuts. They're never going to get there. I mean, can't you imagine in 40 years how many times you'd want to give up on the rest of your extended family and say, forget these folks. I am leaving them. There's nothing but misery with these people. But Caleb was faithful. He just stayed faithful. It's not just his courage. It is his faithfulness to hang in there. Now, I want to say some things about what's happening right now around us. And I know that right now, there's just an oversensitivity in America. It's like like when you... You skinned your knee or something, and the nerves are all raw and damaged, and even to touch it causes pain. And I, I want to be clear, I'm not, I'm not wanting to cause any pain. But I think it's important to speak truth into what's going on right now. This is a, a very difficult and raw time in America. All of the racial tension that's just right there in the spotlight. It's crazy that something can make COVID-19 feel small at times. 
it, it pales in the news compared to the things that we've been watching in recent weeks. And what we are hearing again and again and again is how racism is killing America and just you know everything right now is all about race and racial problems. And I'll be the first to acknowledge that there still are racial issues in the United States. You'd have to be blind not to see that those those problems still exist. But I also think that it's important for us to, to acknowledge a couple of things. One, that progress has been made and is being made in the area of racial equality. We have not fully arrived, but the diversity of, of the people who are protesting and who are declaring that justice must be had for all, there must be fairness for all, we should recognize that that's a good sign. That is a sign of the great progress that has been made. But I think it's also very important for us to realize that, that there is a source of bad information that is seeking to make things appear worse than they are and to move in a direction to take us to a worse place than where we are right now. And ultimately, it's the, it's the devil himself. Lucifer is the author of, of the plan that's unfolding now. Don't get me wrong. There is good that is taking place. As we say together with one voice, there must be justice for all people. God is certainly in that. But remember, Satan always poses as an angel of light. So he always needs to, to hold on to something that's good and true and mix in with it other stuff that's destructive and toxic. And that is happening in what we're watching right now. I don't know that there's any phrase that at the moment is more polarizing or stirs more emotion than the phrase black lives matter. It's incredible how many things immediately pop into our minds when we just hear the phrase black lives matter. And it's amazing how that phrase means such different things for different people. The first thing that I'll say about that is anybody, any person, any group who for whatever reason comes to a place in life that they feel like their life does not matter, that is tragic. And I think we all can agree with that. Whoever you are, black or white or whatever, if you feel like your life for whatever reason doesn't matter, that is an awful place to be. And at some level, everybody has probably felt that way at some point in life. And if, if you realize that any people for an extended period of time feel like their lives don't matter, you understand why they would cry out and, and try and call for things to be different. And so the origins of the, of the concept of Black Lives Matter, I think, is very valid. And it comes out of a, a very real sense of, of hurt and need. But there is an elephant in the room. There is a herd of elephants in America that are not being acknowledged in this whole thing. Black lives do matter. But simply trying to address what remains of the issue of racism in America or of whatever percentage of the police force that are racist or, or overly aggressive, trying to address those issues alone is ignoring the elephant in the room. And here's what is the elephant in the room. The biggest epidemic that is plaguing the black community, and it's not unique to the black community. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But it is, it is so destructive in its impact on the black community is absent fatherhood. It absolutely is absent fatherhood. 
President Barack Obama, praise God for his courage in doing this, he spoke to this so candidly. And he pointed out that a child of any race in America who grows up in a home without a father present is five times as likely to grow up in poverty. He said a child from any race who grows up in a home without a father is nine times as likely to drop out of school. And that's still not the worst of it. He went on to point out that a child of any race in America who grows up without a father in the home is 20 times as likely to go to prison or to jail. What bearing does that have on our conversation? Well, it's just this. You see, in the mid-60s, when the civil rights movement was at its critical juncture, men and women were being used of God in a great way to change the conversation and change the behavior of people and businesses in America. The, voting, the, the uh, Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 1968 were so significant. If we were to split those and take a snapshot of America in 1965, one of the things that you would find is that 25% of black children in America in 1965 were growing up in a home without a father. 25%. If you fast forward 50 years to the year 2015, what you would find is that 77% of black children in America are growing up in a home without a father. That isn't coincidental. That is epidemic in the effect that it's having on a culture, and it's not just black culture, by the way. Blacks today make up about 13% of the American population. Hispanics and Latinos make up about 17 or 18% of the population. Now, nearly 80% of black children are growing up in a home without a father. 58% of Hispanic and Latino Americans are growing up in a home without a father. And as white people, we don't need to get any pious, condescending attitude about it because the report card isn't great on white families either. 37% of white children are growing up in a, in a home without a father present. You know who's setting the bar in America? This might surprise you. Who's setting a bar for us? Who's setting the example are Asian Americans. 5% of the American population is Asian Americans, one out of every 20. And 80% of, of Asian American children are growing up in homes where mom and dad are both there and a part of the family. Should it surprise us? That in communities and in cities where there are a lot of ethnicities represented, that in those school systems, the Asian American kids are taking the lion's share of the academic awards. They're leaving us behind when it comes to performance in the classroom. I got curious. I like to do my own homework. I know what President Obama said about the Five times as likely to be in poverty, nine times as likely to drop out of school, 20 times as likely to wind up in jail or in prison. And I thought, I'm going to look just to see what the statistics are today. And it is uncanny. If you look at the demographics of who is in prison today, and you measure that against that particular population. So if you say, okay, for black America and Latino and Hispanic America and white America and Asian Americans, if you just look within those categories and say, okay, for every 100,000 black Americans, how many are in prison? For every 100,000 Latino and, and Hispanic Americans, how many are in prison? Right on down the line. It's crazy how perfectly it lines up with the percentages 
that have no fathers in the home. I mean, the, the straight percentages are 33% of those in prison are black, 30% are white, and 23% are Hispanic and Latino, and only a teeny little percentage are Asian Americans. But when you then go back and correct for population differences, what you'll find is six times as many per capita or per 100,000 are black as opposed to white, twice as many are Hispanic as opposed to white, and then way on the other end, of the Asian Americans. You know what correlates across the board there? Is that correlates exactly to how the percentages lay out for how many homes have absent fathers. What President Obama pointed out is right on the money. We can and should seek to address issues of racism and injustice. We should not turn a blind eye to that. And we should not be insensitive to the felt needs there. But as we do this, we better be willing to address all forms of racism. That's white against black, black against white, white and black against Hispanic and Latino, and right on down the line, because hate works in all kinds of directions. But we better get honest in the conversation. We better get honest about the problem, because you can't fix a problem that you won't name. And here's the fundamental problem. In America, in ever-increasing numbers, not just in the black community, not just in Hispanic and Latino communities, in America, the trend is unfortunately and has been for decades now abandoning biblical values, particularly as they relate to the family. With the net result, you know what this is. I don't have to tell you. The way that we do relationships no longer reflects biblical values where one man is married to one woman and they make a commitment together to spend the rest of their lives together and they have children together and they both stay committed to each other and to the Lord and to those children. And in the absence of that, what we have, have adopted in ever-increasing numbers is a perspective where guys get to play the field and guys get to take the, the car for a test drive before they make any commitment and, and you know, want to actually commit a length of time to a woman and so we're just going to hook up we're going to try each other out and that becomes the norm for relationships and what i want to tell you is we can say whatever we want to about racism we can march in the streets until the cows come home we will not make things better until we return to biblical values it's easy white or black or anything else to march in the streets what is not easy is to be a faithful man to be a faithful woman. It's easy to, to wave a sign and, and to declare a message and to feel better about yourself. It is a whole lot harder to say, I am not going to, to stand for this anymore. I'm going to take a stand in my own life and with my kids and with my grandkids. I'm not going to act like it's okay that you just chase after whomever or, or whatever. If, if our kids or our grandkids start giving their hearts to someone who doesn't love Jesus and reflect that with their lifestyle, a commitment to the Lord and to His church and to their family, then uh-uh, it isn't happening on our watch. We're going to do everything in our power to pour cold water on that and say, no way, no how. We will not bless that. We will not sanction that because the Word is clear. Believer with believer, enduring commitment. We are going to commit to raise our kids together. So convinced 
that the reason that people feel like that their lives don't matter is no longer what it used to be. It used to be because there was so much oppression and abuse across racial lines, but today the driving force of people feeling like their lives don't matter is far more than anything else is having a parent who was not there for them. I do have enough of a background in psychology to know that the the defining season in our lives where we either find a sense of security and meaning and knowing that we matter, it comes early on. It doesn't develop during our adulthood. It happens when we're kids, and it is dependent more than anything else on mama and daddy showing that they are committed to caring for us and being there for us. And it's hard for anything else to undo that. And we now have millions of Americans of all colors who did not have that advantage. And we're seeing the effects of that. And right now we're being told a lot of stuff that's skewed and twisted to try and, and again, it comes from the pit of hell, to try and make it look like it's all one race against another. Here is a a fact. It is a fact that a gigantic percentage of the people who are murdered in America are black. That is tragic. No wonder people feel like their lives don't matter when they are murdered as frequently as blacks are murdered. But you see, the enemy twists that terrible fact and tries to turn it into, yeah, and it's, it's the police and white people and Hispanic people who are doing it, when the truth of the matter is 96% of those people who are murdered are murdered by other black people. And, and don't dare take any of those numbers and turn it into some opportunity to try and paint any racial group as being worse than another. My point is simply this. White people do damage to white people. Black people do damage to black people in larger numbers than any other group. But the enemy wants to twist this and say, your problem, your problem, your problem is those other people who don't look like you. And to them, your problem is those white people. And we're naive enough at times to take the bait and believe that when the truth of the matter is there is no difference between us, between white and black and Hispanic and Asian, Latino We're made in the image of God. And we all have a desperate need to know that our lives matter. And a beginning point for that is having a mom and a dad who love us and who demonstrate faithfulness to God, to spouse, to kids, and to the church of Jesus Christ. And nothing short of that will restore a real sense of value to life in America. The greatest single need in America today is for faithful men to emerge. Can I say the obvious? There's a lot of people in the room and a lot of people listening online going, Oh, I wonder how that's going to be received. I wonder who else is going to get mad. I wonder how many letters he's going to get. Don't worry about it. I'm not worried about it. Because nothing that I have said comes out of a heart of hate or anger. It comes out of a broken heart that longs to see black and white, and brown, and everything else. Learn to embrace each other and biblical values and to once again discover what it is like to be loved, to enjoy favor. We need to see faithfulness. We need to see men be faithful. There's nobody that's listening, that understands what I'm talking about better than the mamas 
grandmamas who've been raising most of those kids who are exhausted from doing that, who know the reality of deadbeat dads who are not there emotionally, they're not there physically, and they're not there financially. We should stop tolerating racism, but we ought to stop tolerating deadbeat dadism too and raise a new standard. Faithful men, faithful men, enduring faithfulness is as important as a courageous life. The fourth and final thing I'll say, and I'm done, is to receive great things from God. We learn from Caleb's example that we must believe God for great things. Caleb said in Numbers 14, if we obey the Lord, he will surely, somebody say surely, he will surely give us that land rich with milk and honey, so don't rebel. We have no reason to be afraid of the people who live there. The Lord is on our side, and they don't stand a chance against us. And in faith, he says in Joshua 14, 45 years later, so give me the hill country that the Lord promised to me. If the Lord is with me, I will drive them out of the land just as the Lord said. We're going to receive great things from God. We're going to have to believe God for great things. I love the fact that Freedom Church has been moving in faith and has been acting in faith and that in a very real way that we have looked at the hill country and said, give us that land. And that in this season, that land is not called Hebron. It is called Nigeria. It is called Sapala. And whenever we first started thinking about this a year ago, we were going, oh, that's a land too far. That's a hill too high. We don't know how to do that. And God said, I know how. If we'd have had any earthly idea that our church plant plan was going to happen in the midst of a global pandemic that would lock down America and lock down Nigeria and cancel all of our plans for what we would do to launch a church, we'd have been like, this has no chance of success. And out of that, we have this little team emerged three Sundays ago, just just two weeks ago. They meet for the very first time, and Isaiah says, be prepared for how this is going to look. When a church starts over here, the parents send their kids first and let the kids check it out, and then the parents join afterwards. And two Sundays ago, we had 20 adults, or or two weeks ago, uh, three Sundays ago, we had uh, 20 adults and 25 kids show up for church. Last Sunday, they had 25 adults and 85 kids show up for church. I just got a message five minutes before the service started today that this morning, it's 4 a.m. our time, whenever they met today, they had 26 adults and 101 children show up for church today in the Sapala campus of Freedom Church. You've got to put some skin in the game. If you want to see God move in the equation, you put some skin in the game. You got in the game. And I want to tell you, God was already in the game. God is, is already planning what is coming next in Nigeria. It's so cool to see how quickly he is advancing this thing. Uh, Isaiah sent word this morning that what we sent over the, the wire transfer that we sent this week to begin construction on the building. He said the wire has just come through this weekend. We'll begin construction on the permanent church building uh, this coming week. And so, you know what? That is a classic example of us recognizing that God was calling us to something bigger than we could do, not knowing how to do it, and just saying, yes, we'll, we'll go there if you'll go before us. We brought the prayers. We brought the gifts. And God brought the follow-through, and already we're seeing the fruit of that. What is there in your life that is bigger than what you can handle, but you're trusting God for it? Men and women alike, 
we're going to have to be willing to embrace things that are bigger than us if we're going to see the power of God come through. That's why Caleb got to claim what nobody else got. And it blessed generations that followed. I love knowing that every one of us, I mean, look, look around the room right now. I mean, it's a small group that's here. Can I say another obvious thing that doesn't sound like a compliment? Unless I'm missing something through the lights. Other than in the booth, I don't think anybody here is going to be around in 50 years. We're all going to be with Jesus. And yet God is letting us do some things that are going to so outlive us. Don't you love that? Don't you love the thought of leaving a legacy? Caleb got to do that. Generation after generation lived in the best land in all of Israel because of what he did. I love that we get to have a stake right now in doing things that will outlive us by a long shot. Thank you for being men and women of courage and faith. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer right now? Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you ultimately are a father to us. Thank you that in spite of all of the gaps in our lives, all of the gaps of what we needed poured into our lives, that you fill those things in. You're a father to the fatherless. You're so good to us. I pray that you would help us to follow your lead. I pray that you would would raise up among us some Caleb's and some Joshua's. Oh, Lord, help us to be men of faith. Help us to be faithful to our wives, faithful to you, faithful to our children and to your church. Don't let us settle for being average and just attenders. Lord, let us be real leaders. Help us to follow you in faith, we pray in Jesus' name.